0: We are going to be inviting Marcy and Warren Goldstein-Gelb. Our topic is the application of positive psychology and social justice. If ever there was a time for social change in this country, in this world, this is it. Social justice leaders Marcy and Warren Goldstein-Gelb host a podcast called Be Change. -change Be-Change.net is how you can find that which explores the stories of grassroots activists and the strategies and tools they use to strengthen their leadership skills. In particular, Be Change looks at how individuals can lead in ways that reflect their values and bring out the best in their staff and colleagues. The podcast explores the links between positive individual practice, such as focusing on strengths, practicing meditation, expressing gratitude, et cetera, and systemic social change. Podcast hosts, Marcy and Warren Goldstein-Gelb have been social justice leaders in the Boston area for many years. Warren was executive director of the Welcome Project and Marcy is co-executive director of the National Council on Occupational Safety and Health. I welcome to the call Marcy and Warren. Thank you so much for being here today.
1: Thank you for Um, having us.
0: Yeah, Warren. I was wondering, um, why, how did B-Change start?
1: That's perhaps a long story, but I'll I'll try to keep it uh, reasonably brief. Um, I had already been engaged in social justice work for a long time, and had completed my master's degree at Tufts University's uh, Urban and Environmental Policy Program in 1999. And I then worked for Alternatives for Community and Environment, uh, an environmental justice uh, organization based in Roxbury. And also then he also was the executive director at the Welcome Project, a nonprofit uh, in Somerville, Massachusetts that builds the power of immigrants to shape community decisions. So I had a lot of experience, hold on a little bit, uh, working with low income communities Uh, and communities of color and the systemic roots of oppression and inequality. I was pretty deep into that. But in 2013, just before my 50th birthday, I decided to enroll in the uh, certificate program for positive psychology offered by the Whole Being Institute. And I did this at the the moment, or at the moment that I did this, uh, mainly to strengthen my own personal Growth. Um, and so I, but the program was different than I expected it to be. Not that it wasn't about individual skills, but it made me think about um, uh, the systemic change uh, practices that I'd learned through Tufts Urban and Environmental Policy Program. And the individual practices I learned through the positive psychology, I learned through positive psychology in the Whole Being Institute. And these are two worlds that did not often communicate with each other. In fact, when I came back jazzed from the um, positive, my first uh, immersion into positive psychology, I I talked to one of my board members at the Welcome Project about it. Uh, and he said yeah not so much you know we were interested in systemic change not necessarily individual change and by the way i'm i'm being over generalizing here you know because just for convenience uh, i don't think it's always so that uh, positive psychology is about individuals and um, uh, uh, systemic change has to be relegated to uh, departments of urban and environmental policy but just for simplicity's sake, uh, that's what I'm. That's what I'm saying for now. So I decided to do a podcast to connect these two different worlds, because I thought that a conversation between these two worlds would be useful, and I didn't think that they were communicating with each other very much. So um, the first episode. Oh, so uh, so I recorded two episodes in the summer of 2015. With the intention of launching in the fall of 2015, the first episode as as Phoebe mentioned right before this, uh, ep- this this uh, talk uh, was recorded at International Positive Psychology Association conference in uh, June I think of 2015, and the guest our first guest was uh, Joanne Brune, who was like me a graduate of the. Uh, certificate program. Um, And then I recorded one other uh, episode over that summer. But uh, the goal was to have three episodes complete. uh, Before we launched, I had two. uh, And then I had a massive stroke in September of 2015. So I did not launch, I could not launch the podcast at that time. Although when I started to recover from the stroke, I realized just how important doing this podcast was to me. I was doing it as a volunteer. Um, it wasn't paying anything, uh, but it really mattered to me to begin to get, as a part of my own recovery, to, um, to work on the podcast and to make sure it, 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 was, it became part of the world. Um, so, and also some of what I'd learned in the, in the uh, program, the, um, the whole, the certificate program for Hall-Being Institute was relevant to me. Uh, I, I was surprised at how relevant, for example, uh, neuroplasticity uh, was something we talked about a lot in the positive psychology program. we read a book called The Brain That Changes Itself by Norman Deutsch. And also, when I, uh, when I was in rehab, I was at Spalding uh, Rehab Center. And, uh, and their slogan was, find your strength. So I was a- amazed at how much I was surrounded by positive psychology. Um, so, but I could not, I didn't have the ability to produce, edit, and actually sustain hosting the show, especially right after my stroke. Um, so I invited Marcy and she graciously agreed to be the co-host of the podcast. And it took us a couple of more years to, to figure it out. We hired John Consilvio to be, be an editor, the editor. Um, and last, a year ago, almost to the day, we released our first four episodes in June
0: 2019. Wow, that's an amazing story, Marcy. What was your was your interest in the podcast helping Warren realize his dream, or as an activist, is this something that drew you to the podcast? Oh, we
2: can't hear you yet. You unmute me. Using- there we go. Thank you. Um, so that is an excellent question, and I um, had been involved with with social justice work. In fact, Warren and I had been uh, very much involved with with social justice projects together. Uh, we were involved with a collectively run progressive community newspaper, uh, and and often our worlds would would be uh, intertwined. I didn't have any particular interest in positive psychology or knowledge of positive psychology, uh, but I wanted him to succeed in his podcast. And then when he um, had his stroke, and literally he was on his deathbed. In fact, the doctors didn't think he was going to make it, um, and he was unconscious for nearly a month. Um, And I don't know why, but for some reason in that very first week of him being unconscious and our not knowing if he was going to live or die, one of the first things that I kept thinking was he has to live to see his podcast come to life. Now, why I was thinking about his podcast when he had a son, when he had a wife, and many other things to live for, but there was something about him being so close to realizing this dream that it had to happen. And so part one was we had to get him alive um, and through rehab. And, um, And he was noting along the way how many of the tools from positive psychology were so meaningful to him. Um, and he mentioned um, neuroplasticity, which I'll have to explain in a moment because I'm not sure if everybody here is familiar with that. Um, but, you know, just sort of being able to try to, to use, uh, build on the strengths that he had. Um, and so when he was ready to come back home again, it really was practically a year um, of intensive rehab, um, and he really wanted to move forward. I offered just to simply kind of do some of the editing <laughs> of the podcast. I thought, well, at least I could do that. Um, but then as we began to to talk more about the, the meaning of the podcast and, and the purpose, um, you know, Warren was, was very much focused on how positive psychology tools, uh, things like all the things you see here, you know, finding strengths and, and other aspects that kind of promote resiliency among social justice leaders, prevent burnout, promoting well-being. These are all things that I thought were very valuable, but I also thought I had a slightly different take and that my particular interest was in seeing how social justice organizations could actually live and embody the values that they talk about. Sort of how do social justice groups walk the walk? Um, You know, they're A lot of groups and movements and people talk about democracy and justice and respect and inclusivity. But how are they actually run? And this uh, next graphic um, may look like it could be from some big corporation. But in fact, um, it kind of reflects a little bit of my own experience uh, working in the social justice world. you know, when I was, when I was younger, I, I had a range of jobs in the corporate world. I worked as a waitress. I worked at a supermarket. I was a temporary worker. But really, my mission um, was to earn a living doing social justice work and contributing to the world, just like the folks at JCC um, and Phoebe as well. And uh, so I was so excited when one of my first jobs was at a very well-known community action agency. And I'd learned about this organization in college. So I I was super excited to be thinking about how I'd work with this team of people from across this organization on a shared mission to end poverty. That was our dream together. But so it surprised me when I discovered that this organization was in a 10th floor building um, and I was on the lower level, just like many of the other lower level staff. Um, and that the 10th floor was reserved for the chief executive officer. Um, And I once to enter that 10th floor because I had to deliver a document and was told that I was not allowed to drink from the water fountain because that was reserved for the chief executive officer. And um, so I I began to see a disconnect between the missions of nonprofit social justice groups and the way that they actually were carried out. Um, And then my next job was at a community development corporation with a bold mission of empowering residents to achieve affordable housing and economic opportunity. But it was run by executive director who pretty much led by bullying. Um, he, if he didn't get his way, he would yell until he did. Uh, one time he lost his temper so much that I saw him dump trash on a coworker's desk. desk. Um, but what also felt hypocritical wasn't just having a, a leader who was a bully, but also, The way that they engaged in the work was not so much empowerment, but let's convince those that are impacted to agree with our perspective. So the organization wanted to build low-income housing in a low-income neighborhood. Now, you know, that's a, you know, having low-income housing is obviously something that's needed. But what I was asked to do was to organize the tenants so that they'd agree with the project. And to me, that didn't feel like organizing. That felt like, or empowering by any stretch. It felt like telling people what to do. So over the years of working with social justice organizations, I came to see over and over again, you know, so many that were hierarchical, where the power lay in the executive director. Where organizing was more a means of getting the community to support our priorities within the organization. Um, so I'm going to take a stop right here, because I want to see if folks that are in this room um have any sort of remotely shared experience Um, and if you could take a moment just to to write in the chat that and any experience that you might have had where you were either working or a volunteer where you felt disenchanted or burnt out and in part it was due to something related to poor leadership just just describing a bit your experience in the chat and Caroline's kindly agreed to to share some of the comments
0: Absolutely. So we're going to the swamp, everybody. <laughs> Please share in the chat if you've had an experience where uh, the leadership of an organization um, or just something that you've encountered where you were felt disillusioned or it didn't work, right? Could have been as a volunteer or where there was a, a way as a group. Let me just make sure I can see the chat. mm-hmm
2: um, and I so, can actually see it as well. Okay. Do you want to go ahead and read it out then? Uh, what I, you, feel free to start, Caroline, and then okay, I can jump this
0: one. So Rachel was saying, my last job, horrible leadership that infected everyone and everything and made all our lives miserable. Ellen is saying, my life in Philly, Philadelphia School District as a counselor and as a teacher. Esther absolutely worked for a legal publication for many years. Last two years was bullied by a female manager. Um, Lisa Brandeis is saying, let's see, poor communication by my building during the pandemic. Well, yeah, absolutely, right? Mm -hmm. Maybe this is reminding me of my first year of social work where my supervisors were so burned out they couldn't support me. My church has had poor leadership and it's been so frustrating that I quit all volunteerism this week. In fact, thank you, everybody. We have, for one, more,
2: oh, we have one, one more teacher who worked under a principal who was a dictator, right? And wow. I'm sure that that principal probably talks about caring about the children and, and what that means. So, so you've all lived the experience that I had and I knew that it didn't have to be this way. Um, and so I, began to look for other like-minded people who wanted to see our organizations really act in the ways that we talk. And so why don't I give you a moment to, to share the opposite of, you know, with, have you had an experience where you were actually inspired in, by a leader? And what was it that they did that kept you feeling like you're an important part of this movement, of this organization, of this group? And let's hear some of the good, good news as well.
0: So we're going to the pond, everybody.
2: Let me just see. Give a couple of minutes to think about that.
0: Well, mine, of course, is the whole Bing Institute. When I just met with Phoebe and Megan and said, you know, can can we come together and create something where we can stay connected to the community? And this has been a completely volunteer effort and has been phenomenal since the beginning of the crisis until today. So that has been an incredible example of leadership and and patience Uh, The JCC. We didn't know how to even run a Zoom call. So the whole Bing Institute really kind of swept us up and taught us how to do that was patient as we learned it was really amazing so we've gotten some information in the chat let's see um, volunteering I'm just gonna come back here so I can see better All right. volunteering for FIDF organization where I was respected and loved yeah The leader made us feel valued and important. Andrea talked about that. Yes, Holbeing Institute has been inspiring, said Sean. Lisa Brandis, the coolness and love of Caroline. Oh, (laughs) truth and embodied with confidence, respect and trust. Thank you, Lisa. Elaine Goldstein, different principal who valued his staff, supported his staff, cared about the students and community. Bunny Franco, at the Met Museum, I have definitely been inspired by other volunteers. Joanne Edgar, the JCC has been inspirational in its leadership too. Many people, including me. Yeah. There was a chief engineer where I worked who listened well, allowed us to take risks, and encouraged us to balance personal and professional growth and needs. That's from Renee. Barbara says, genuine caring about my well being and asking how I was doing and reaching out quite often to lend support in my new role. Trish says, I'm a member of Hammers and Heels, a women's building group, which Habitat for Pinellas County. The leadership and camaraderie of this group has been tremendous. Our our home recipients build side by side with us. It has been so inspiring. And Richard says, my boss, Pope Francis, has taken a bold lead in the reality of ecological justice with his writings. Joanne Edgar says, "Working at a grant-making foundation, grant-making foundation, where I was encouraged to redefine my job and include others, and JCC whole being so supporting and kindness, I am so grateful."
2: Yeah,
1: some of those
2: fantastic.
1: Marcy, do you mind if I cut in? Um, Jump in, no, please. Um, I think that some of those were clearer about how the leadership. Um, was positive and some of them were a little less clear. Like, so for example, a couple of people talk about the inspiration they drew from the leader, but may not have said exactly why, why the leader was, what did the leader do that was inspirational. So maybe a little bit more clarification from some people um, about what it was that made the leadership or the leader, you uh, Uh, Mm -hmm. Good. Um, uh, Some of you, um, the question may be off, but... um.
0: Yeah, and that way, Warren, doesn't that help us sort of unpack what it is specifically we're looking for? when we know, oh, this leader impacted me in this way, it's kind of like, okay, what tool did they use? What what strategy did they use? Because then we can start to look and see, is there something common across the board that leaders can do to promote both social change and also uh, have that experience being um, one that's broadened and uplifts
2: us? And what I do see repeatedly, even though not everybody may say this, is how people feel like they're treated. If they're, if they're treated with respect, if they're given, somebody was given an opportunity to redefine their role. So if they have an opportunity for growth, uh, if they're treated with kindness, uh, if their perspective is welcome, uh, somebody right clear with their expectations, empathy, ability to listen, ability to apologize. Wow. And so Esther shares that for five plus years,
0: she's been on the program oversight committee of an organization who welcomed and respected our input. Very kind and caring executive director. So again, that listening, that ability to listen. Um, Bunny said, I'm also impressed by people who chair and or participate in these meetings. Yeah, that's great. Um, so we are getting here a little bit more. Sherry. And shares. Bunny.
2: <laughs> Bunny, just so you know, um, to us, you read as Bunny. You just see me. You just see the me in the chat section. But everyone else sees your name. Yeah. Oh, that's so kind.
0: Yeah.
2: Um, Opportunities for growth. Mm -hmm. Listening. These are wonderful.
0: And I do think that, um, Marcy, would you say that listening and uh, earlier in the call, I think it was Catherine Flevin from Leader Moms was talking about how there has to be at this period of time uh, an ability to be both mindful so we can pause yeah. and listen to one another and also humility. So from our leaders that don't just think that they know everything, right, the, cur- the solution. Yeah. So that that wonderful balance between... You know, mindfulness, and the ability to pause, and humility, the ability to listen for new perspectives. Yeah,
2: absolutely. Um, and there was some other, uh, you know, basically, you know, people are writing about uh, also sort of a feeling that nobody is above somebody else, that we're all equals in an organization on that. You know, again, think about that example of the chief executive officer on the 10th floor with the fountain. I mean, that's just something that you would not want to have in society reflected. Um, So these are all wonderful um, uh, thoughts and really consistent with with what what I was feeling and what I heard from other social justice activists who wanted the organizations and movements to be consistent. Um, And so um, we to develop some tools, um, some of which we have integrated into the podcast. Um, and one of them is to just sort of have social justice activists and, and leaders to say, you know, what is it that we're trying to achieve in our communities? And what are the values that we are seeking in our communities? And let's, let's articulate that. Are we seeking democracy? Are we seeking justice? Are we seeking transparency, inclusivity? I mean, even when it comes to, you know, um, uh, economic justice, uh, all of these values are things that an organization, a movement, a group can themselves embody, or they can not embody it. Um, And so after you identify, you know, what is it that you're seeking to do then, well, who needs to be at the table? So how do we have all of the stakeholders as, Sitting there as decision makers? Um, are we talking about who in the community, those that are generally most impacted by this social justice we're seeking? We've got staff, we've got a board of directors. Um, so, all of these folks need to be at the table. It needs to be clear wh- how they're going to be engaged in decision making, what their role is, and how the organization creates an infrastructure that makes it easy and clear about how folks are gonna be involved. And so as you see in this other corner, the how. Um, how will they have a voice in the table, at the table? How will they be treated? Um, and how will they be engaged in the mission uh, and reflect different perspectives so that you truly do have that inclusivity that you talk about, but may not actually have within your organization. And all of these recent movements and and protests have been so similar to what we've just been talking about, the Me Too movement. You know, women in not just actresses, not just others, but within the social justice movement, uh, women and not just women have experienced sexual harassment and violence in large proportions. And again, are are grappling with how do we overcome that? Uh, Racism, discrimination, uh, all of that stuff are stuff that even our social justice organizations are reflecting of and so fast forward from these bad experiences I mentioned to my opportunity as an executive director um, uh, before I was at national Cosh at the Massachusetts uh, coalition for occupational safety and health you know was how was I going to try to put in practice all of these things that we've been talking about and so I you know again I needed to look at well who are we trying to engage and impact And so through a community planning process, we were able to identify who's most impacted by poor working conditions, immigrants, people of color, youth of color, um, and and others. So those are the people that needed to be at the table in our organization, having the strongest voice. So that's one stakeholder. We also have staff. So who is gonna be on the staff? Are they gonna be reflective of the people in the community? And once they are on our staff, what kind of a voice are they going to have? And so one thing you'll often see within nonprofit organizations is a reluctance for staff to have a strong voice. The message that often nonprofit leaders will say is, hey, we're a movement. You just work 24 seven, work your butt off. I've done it. I've been doing this for decades. You should be working 24 seven too. Um, And you don't have a voice in that, by the way. And so one of the things that's been a critical responsibility for nonprofits who pledge that they care about economic justice is for them to have unionized staff. And so our organization at Mascosh and and there are a number of organizations around the country have ensured that to really have a true voice in the workplace, you need to have uh, people, workers that are at the table that are actually bargaining for their conditions, for their wages. Um, and a clear process for how to handle problems. And that's exactly what a union and a collective bargaining agreement does, even in a social justice organization. Um, And so between the process of ensuring that those most impacted have a place at the table, that they are leaders and creating spaces for them to be on committees, to be on the board, to be on the staff, to be leading peer-to-peer efforts is one piece. Having the staff have a true voice at the table is a second piece. And then having all of these folks and other stakeholders on the board are is another component of it. And then of course, you're going to have a mess. You're going to have all these different perspectives. That's good. <laughs> and you have to get comfortable with the sort of disharmony of different perspectives and have a way of resolving conflicts that address this. And all of these issues, are now being discussed on the Be Change podcast. And so we have social justice leaders who have raised all of the challenges that they face trying to achieve this um, and dealing with that discomfort of um, having all of these voices and not being in charge and having a real democratic organization.
1: So I'll stop right there. Wow. Thank you. Do you want to mention uh, a couple of people or one person from the podcast who faced this challenge and talked about this challenge?
2: Yeah, sure. That sounds sounds great. So, um, yeah, we've had these amazing leaders who have been so open about their vulnerability. Um, We had one one gentleman who came into um, a Black-led organization um as an asian young very young man coming out of Carver, um but with the same sort of vision that we're talking about here and setting up a real leadership where the african-american community that he was in were on the board were on committees they were making decisions they were it was very strong and they were leading a very groundbreaking criminal justice reform effort um, to try to address the fact that a lot of people coming out of the prison system could not get jobs because they had. A, a, a record that was blocking them and. so they built from the ground up this incredible. movement of people that were going to the state house who were speaking out and saying, we need our jobs. We can't get jobs because. of this record. We need to change the way things are done and. it was incredibly bold and finally they came to a point. where they were given an offer by the legislature of the leadership of the legislature, we are willing to pass this, but we're not going to include this. And so this young executive director had to go back to his community and say, look, we had this opportunity. We had this wonderful offer and he kind of needed a win. I mean, it's been a long campaign. You're kind of exhausted. You also need to show a win for your funders. Otherwise, you kind of go out of business. And he was sort of hoping they would kind of be on board. But when you build a member-led organization, the consequences are the members decide. And they said, no, this compromise does not work for us. We're the ones who are gonna be impacted. The answer is no. So they all went back to the drawing board and fought and fought for a long, long time. And now in Massachusetts, they ended up passing the strongest criminal justice reform in the country, and it's been a model and replicated elsewhere. And so he has seen the results of sticking to the member-driven approach.
0: So the strength of perseverance is really important in uh, social justice work. And I was also struck, Warren, in, uh, in I'm in the SIP program, and we're talking about meaning and how important meaning is, right? And so when you say, Marcy, when you say the what do you want to achieve in your community, it also hooks into the why. And the brain really needs that why Michael Stegers work of why am I doing this, why is this important Mm -hmm. Um, so that it it sort of activates almost all of us and it helps us keep that the perseverance that we need, you know, to, to continue and to keep going. What are some other stories that you have? I love the examples. They're so, uh, oh, you've got the positive psychology tools up. Oh, here we go. I just led you right into
1: it. Yeah, look at that. The mindfulness and pausing right from, Fred, right from what you just said. Um, so, I mean, I just took a few uh, tools. Um, not there's a, there's a pretty big uh, uh, set of tools to choose from, but I took, the first ones that came to mind, and I was also trying to think about the overlap between uh, individuals and communities. And I've already pointed out a couple of places where there's an over, where I can see an overlap. Um, but I will start with uh, uh, gr- gratitude and appreciation. And I think I, I may need some help explaining this, but I think that the mask. Uh, example about uh, why people should wear masks is definitely related to this um, and some other things because you don't wear a mask to protect yourself. You wear a mask to protect other people. Um, and I'm struck by the power of that. Um, I think uh, also uh, Thich Nhat Hanh has something called Intervene um, which I think is related to this. Um, it's the idea that, uh, well, can, does anybody know what the meaning of interbeing is? Um, because I'm having some trouble, um, uh, articulating Inter,
0: it. Interbeing? Yeah. Uh, interbeing, uh, Phoebe said interbeing, it's the we. Does that help? And, and Lisa Brandis, just so she knows, she has an acronym for MASK, which I just wanted to share, which is M for meaningful, A for acts, um, S for show kindness. So for her, MASK means meaningful acts, show kindness. Isn't that beautiful?
1: Yeah, that is beautiful. Yeah. Um, I think the, the um, I'm always struck when I hear about MASKS and that definition um, about how it's not just for me to protect myself, but to protect, it's really to protect other people. And so, and when I thought about it, I'm, I might drop the you know, whole into being analogy, but I'm really, I think that's a powerful connection uh, because it's not just about your own self-interest. It's about the um, your own self-interest in, in terms of the larger society's protection, not your own protection. Um, Does that make sense?
0: Yes, absolutely, Oren. And what I was just thinking is, like, in social justice work, you are considering the other, right? That's sort of a foundation of the work. You're saying that we are all interconnected. We are all one. So your well-being rides – my well-being rides on your well-being. Your well-being rides on mine. So that that whole connection of the we – I once said to somebody, like – You know, it's a bit like the body. I'm an embodied uh, person. So if I'm not paying attention to my foot, right, because I'm only paying attention to my shoulder, then I'm missing the connection and they influence one another. So, and I I function very well when I have both a foot and a shoulder. And so I, I liken it to that. When we have a functioning society and all parts are working, we are interconnected. The yeah. whole works yeah. better. Is
1: yeah. that what you're? What you're? Alluding That's right. To? Yeah, it's it's uh it's become a lot more obvious these days because you know the virus and also the um, Black Lives Matter movement have really pushed this to obviousness. Um, uh, the second one is uh, maybe just an individual leader thing. Um, and it's the same thing that you said earlier, Caroline, um, mindfulness along with pausing. And I think that this is a time when you might, uh, one might uh, react, tempers might be a little shorter these days and so if we can learn to practice mindfulness and pause before taking an action or sending an email or whatever it is, I think that that's probably very useful. And then uh, strengths, identification and strength spotting. Um, And I wrote in parentheses, well, yeah, individual and community. Uh, And what I mean is, uh, you know, in lower income neighborhoods uh, and communities of color, they often get a bad rap um, in terms of like the community and uh, the people living there. but you can always find strengths and strength spot um, in any community. Um, so some communities may have more difficulty um, and may be resource deprived, but we may, might wanna change the way we think about lower income communities and look for the strengths that are there. Um, and then the last thing, It actually comes from a podcast episode of ours where we were talking with this uh, person uh, who was uh, living, who lives in Texas. And he rejected, and he was not very happy with the individual definition of resilience. He felt like when the hurricanes hit uh, Houston, it was community res- resilience that was more important than individual res- resilience, right, Marcy? Um oh, well. Wow. Um and then below, um I have a little I mean I started to think about the Spire model. Um and the I the Spire model for those that may not know it, uh it's a whole being developed um model of personal growth, uh, and it says optimal well-being comes out of, uh, you know, of integrating uh, spiritual, physical, uh, 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 intellectual um, uh, aspects of the character. Um, And then I turned, went below to Feature social determinants of health, which is a public um, idea that um, that is present in uh, in uh, people who work on social justice and also the program that I went to, Tufts Urban and Environmental Policy Program, um, which says that health is probably not determined by not wholly determined by medical uh, issues, but rather uh, access to uh, affordable housing, uh, nutrient rich food, high quality schools, and community activities and others um, are responsible for up to 90% of health outcomes. Um, So they're sort of, in my view, flip sides of the same coin. Uh, Does that make sense?
0: Absolutely. And what I would love to do is strength spot you a little bit, Warren. Um, you let us know that you had this massive stroke and this big challenge. And what I'm so impressed is your bravery, your tenacity, your willingness to share your passion with us and um, to give us the, the benefit of your insight and your background and your love of learning. And it's just been really wonderful to share these positive psychology tools i think i was sharing with you at the beginning of the call that i'm also in the sip program and and i have found these tools to be incredibly useful as well Um, it's it's heroic what you're doing and um, when you talk about personal right like how do personal practices also influence our ability for social justice and change and and I really I can see that I see you modeling that so I'm I'm, I thank you for this taking us through these positivity uh positive psychology tools very much
1: thank you Um, you so much yeah um go ahead I'm sorry
0: I was going to say um you know what are some of the lessons for social justice leaders that can be drawn from what you are doing with your podcast for either you or Marcy, to address that. Marcy, can you unmute or do we need to unmute you? Oh,
2: I think I'm unmuted. Am there unmuted? you go. Yeah, now you are. Okay. Uh, oh. Do you want me to jump in, Warren, or do you want sure. to Sure, no,
1: yeah, me? please do. I've been hogging the uh, time. No,
2: not at all. Not, not at, at all. all. Um, you know, it, it amazes me how we, we've spoken with people all over the country involved in uh, you know, everything uh, Warren mentioned, uh Houston uh, gentleman who's who's working uh, with, with immigrants who are in wheelchairs, often as a result of a, a workplace disaster or it could be a physical disaster. And, uh, you know, his dedication to their being, the, these uh, members of his organization being the voices of his group of, um, and he mentioned, Warren mentioned resilience about how so many barriers are put in their way, and yet they're expected to simply be resilient, and um, you know that that his his mission, like so many others on our on our show, is to uh, to both amplify the fact that you can't be resilient when you've got an unjust world uh, and just sort of expect that people will be pulled up by their bootstraps, but get out of the way of of folks that are put in this situation and give them a space to articulate what they need and have organizations that are the sort of democratic embodiment. And um, so what we just see from that group and from you know other leaders are just this struggle to really give space to the people in their communities to be able to speak for themselves, um, to be able to identify what is it that we need, what's the best approach, and how are we gonna get there and we're going to speak you know, truth to power um, outside the organization because we're going to be the power within our organization. I don't know Warren if you want to add to that.
1: No that's good that's good and I, I hope hoping we have time to get to the the last uh, question um, yeah, which I
0: thought, is I well, thought we should go for it
1: yeah uh, I, well, I'll, I'll do the. I'll ask the question this time. <laughs> um, <laughs> what is the role of a of a white leader in a time of black and brown led activism?
2: Yeah, and I, I um, Warren and I talked about that question. And I wonder um, if we, we should ask like, it in
0: the chat, Marcy. Oh, yeah. Maybe we Absolutely. should just ask Absolutely. it in the chat because that is yeah. what's up for everybody right now. Is, you know, yeah, I would I love to hear from, we have social activists, we have people that are very involved. So, what do you feel is the role of a white leader in the time of brown and black, black, and um, indigenous people, and the acti- activism right now? Um, okay, Elaine, yeah. to listen. Listening and collaboration, offering your talents to educate self and other white people and do the anti-racist work among white people. Anyone else? This is great. Well, just keep them coming if you want to. And I, can I just say one thing that I would also love sure. for you to, to address in, in this is that what I, what I find or what I notice is, uh, some people are getting offended when they say well, you know especially if they've been doing social justice work for a long time as i know you guys have and somebody says well you have white privilege and and that the idea that they're getting a little defensive but you don't understand i've been there all along and yet there still is a reckoning isn't there because uh, if you have white skin you do have privilege like we can say for example i said at the beginning Um, I heard someone in the black and brown and indigenous community say, I'm demonstrating for my life. I have to be there, right? It's my life. And yet for me to decide whether to demonstrate or not to demonstrate is evidence of my white privilege, right? So it's a very interesting and tricky place to not go into that defensive mode, even if we've been doing a lot. And also not to blame others for you're not doing enough. Like, so right, right. Do to, does that make sense? Like, for some people to say, yeah, oh, this absolutely. person's insensitive, or this person doesn't understand they they have white privilege, and then to judge one another, that seems to me to be, yeah. uh, a, a, I don't want to say, uh, a distraction rather than helping. Yeah. Um, we've got some other things in the chat that I want to, because I know you guys are so smart. Thank you for sharing with us your your opinions, because um, I want to make sure we have all of them in here. I love the comfort in naming race, African-Americans, people of color, racism, etc., and how we can use positive psychology as a tool to learn. Oh, let me just go, I just lost that. To learn and transform. Trish says, to use our influence to empower and activate black voices. Rilesia says, whites can be better listeners without uh, being defensive. Yeah. yeah, there you go. Yeah. Increase awareness yes. as to why all people need to vote and elect officials who could change legislation. Thank you, Sherry. That's beautiful.
2: Yeah, you know, just building on, on exactly what, what, what some of these folks are saying and what you just said, Caroline, is that I think that um, white folks need to get uh, used to feeling a little uncomfortable Um, because, you know, I think that people who are social justice leaders, uh, need to have the feeling that they want to lead and they want to, to show how active they are, and yet they need to step aside, uh, and, and let, you know, black and brown folks lead their own movements and listen to what they have to say and not be the spokespeople and to not to, uh, not speak for uh, other folks and that's hard to do when you're used to being a leader uh, and you feel like oh if i don't say something then that means i'm not you know i'm not actually doing what i'm supposed to be doing and so i i mean what i what i hear a lot from people of color is well get used to it live with that discomfort because we have that every day um and so even when we were talking about having this question you know, I said to Warren, I don't I don't think anybody should pretend that they are an expert in what it means to to truly be an ally and to not uh, speak for others and to truly let others lead and, and support them. So I think it's a it's a quandary that we need to settle into. We need to undertake a lot of introspection about our own biases, encourage conversations in the schools and among others. So it's, it's a big we've got a long road to hoe.
0: We have some more comments in the chat that I just wanted to share for everybody. Richard says, we can begin with our common humanness as the start of dialogue and conversations. And Phoebe says, Wednesday's Lunch and Learn, WBI alumni attorneys um, and positive psychology practitioners, Nina Simchai and Stephen Redman, will explore this topic much in much more depth. Um, Jean H says, to continue to learn, to examine our own biases, Um, Rolesia says, uh, and I apologize if I'm not saying your name correctly. It's so beautiful. R-O-L-E-S-I-A, I I haven't encountered that name. It's gorgeous. Learn history from multiple perspectives, not primarily European history and point of view. That's beautiful. Ellen says, listen, be supportive. I can brainstorm with Black people, um, hang on one second, and people of color if they want. Share resources, be accepting of others. Ideas, acknowledge their traumas. That's an interesting one too, right? We have to acknowledge that it is traumatic for black and brown and indigenous people to live in our country. Um, there was a meme that went around on Instagram or recently where a white female officer was approaching a little black girl and she was just shaking, shaking and crying and the, the police officer just wanted to just say hello and check in with her. And, and this little girl was just traumatized by being approached by a white officer. And she got down on one knee and she said, you know, we're not all bad. And I'm so sorry you feel scared. And she she tried to talk with her and there were just tears coming down her face. And I was just so, um, so upset by that. But, but that's a reality, right? That's a reality. Listen to think I was, used to think I was a good person because I didn't, hang on one second. Uh, Elaine says, used to think I was a good person because I didn't see color. Realize it's important to see color and recognize the differences. That's a beautiful share. Um, I don't know anyone until I'm in their shoes. And Josephine says, listen, show up and be present. Oh, here's an actual link here. Uh, Take the Harvard implicit bias test. And there's a link in there. That's a great one. Thank you for that suggestion. And then recommend book White Fragility Yes, it's, a, it's challenging to read. Joanne says, also white leaders can influence other white leaders and influence them to become more active in social justice movements. Notice inequities in your everyday life and interrupt them when you see them happening. That's beautiful.
1: It's beautiful. I don't know if anyone has mentioned this or even if Marcy already mentioned this, but uh, people of color, uh, if there's an issue or a question or a policy question, I think that people of color should decide, not not the um, what what the action or response should be, right. not the uh, well-intentioned uh, white folks. And we're seeing that a lot now, uh, as allies say, "Oh well, you know, we should take this action or that action," without ever checking in and centering the discussion around people of color themselves, the ones who are most affected.
0: Beautiful, Warren. Great point. And I think, again, I return to the strength of humility. Right? To access that strength at this time. And I think, Marcy, it's it's particularly challenging, as you said, when we all are leaders and doers. And most New Yorkers that I know are. We want to get out there. We walk places. We get up and do. We're doers. So we want to we want to get in there, we want to, uh, we're survivors, we're, we're the the mo- you know what I mean? <laughs> we're, kind of, we're kind of, we have a lot of grit. And at the same time, what's needed now is that pause and that humility and that willingness to step back. And, um, Joe, I know Joanne Edgar's on the call and she's worked a lot with the Mississippi Center for Justice. Mm-hmm. And Joanne, if you want to put in the chat, the, um, a link to their having a, an event uh, recently, or coming up, is it on Friday, Joanne? Can, uh, can I, I'm gonna ask you to unmute. I don't know if you can. Oh, I just did. Oh, yeah. fantastic. It's the Mississippi Center for Justice and they're having an event on Juneteenth uh, from five to six Eastern time on their Facebook page. And you can find it on their Facebook page. They are, um, a public assistance law firm, but they also work on a community level by listening to the community and helping to define the issues they work on as defined by the community. And it's really a
2: very interesting model of uh, social justice activism, I find.
0: Maybe they could be on your Be Change podcast.
1: Absolutely. That's a
0: good yeah. idea. Yeah, we'll have uh we'll hook you up for and we'll uh I'll make sure Joanne can give you the context because they're doing some amazing work. And that's the other thing that we can do, everyone, right? Is we can elevate those uh, like the Mississippi Center for Justice that are doing amazing work and and put them in connection with other people that we know so that the word and the examples, one of the things that I I listened to your podcast and one of the things that I was so impressed by it is that by listening to it, I was educated to see what other people are doing, right? And then I was like, oh, maybe we can do that in our community and let me hook that person up with our person up in Harlem. And I think networking, is something that we can all do really well. Um, it's always uh, crucial and it's always needed. And there, I think it was, uh, I forgot, it might've been even your last guest. Who was your last guest? Mama, something, oh, yeah, in Boston. Oh, Mama.
1: Je- Je- yes, yes, yeah, yes,
0: gosh, wow, what they're doing. Can you just give us, to take us home, a brief synopsis of what they're doing because that was really remarkable.
1: Marcy, do you wanna do that? Sure.
0: Actually,
1: so actually, just right. to put it in a little context, and then Marcy can take it. I became, or we became, interested in uh, uh, social. Oh, man!
2: Social aid networks.
1: Social aid networks. Mutual, mutual, aid. mutual aid networks. Uh, and I, did, I had not realized until recently that mutual aid networks, which have sprung up all over the country. Um, have have both an individual mission to provide services, but also uh, a social mission. Uh, so their tagline, for example, is uh, "Solidarity, not charity." Mm-hmm. And I'll let, I'll ask Marcy to take it from there. Okay.
2: Yeah. So so I had, I had become involved with them because I noticed that this amazing group of energetic people from the community came together as volunteers, recognizing that this was going to be a disaster for people who weren't able to work, people couldn't access food. Um, And so immediately they went to work creating committees uh, to make sure that people could access uh, resources, but they really had this mission in mind, as Warren mentioned. We're not just about giving away, but we want to build community. And so people from all language backgrounds, all ethnic backgrounds were encouraged to be a part of this growing movement of You know, we're going to bring food. We're going to collect food. We're going to offer services. People are volunteering, um, and it's moved from serving and engaging thousands of people to now they're moving on to taking on um, tenants' rights and affordable housing because a lot of people no longer have the funds to keep on paying their rent and sort of organizing the thousands of people that have become involved in this mutual aid network. So it's it's truly a, a you know I think we're seeing a resurgence of community-based peer-to-peer mutual support and activism.
0: It's beautiful. And one of the things that uh, activated for me, and I'll just end with this, because I know we're at one o'clock, the hour went by quick, is one of the stories that I was really profoundly affected by was there was uh, some of the same people applying for the funds under different names. And that was because they were embarrassed to ask for, honestly, what they truly needed. Right, because they felt like it was too much to ask. So that helped me realize that it's not necessarily fraud all the time, right? It's just really, and what I loved about that organization is they went in depth and they talked to those people and they actually said, well, can you tell us how much you really need? And then we can see if we can get that rather than applying for $100 here under this name and $100 under another name and $100 under another name. It's like, what do you need this for? And let's 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 allow you to be authentic, and and fully express your needs, and there's a you know and get past that shame or embarrassment or um, that I think is so important too. So thank you both for the work that you're doing. What thank I would love you. to do is something called a love bomb, everybody, which is just give some. Uh, some positive energy to Warren and Marcy to thank them for coming on the call for the work they do just you know anything that's been inspiring for you and uh, so that they can hear that and I'm just inspired by by your personal triumph in your uh, medical condition my father had a stroke on February 16th and Um, I know that journey um, and so I also know a lot about neuroplasticity and believe strongly in it and wow so you are you such an example of that thank and you. thank you Phoebe for for being on the chat and thank everyone you for, thank uh, you. for being there and Phoebe do you want to just tell us who's coming tomorrow Yes, we have two uh, of our whole being alumni. They're both attorneys and also positive psychology practitioners, Stephen Redman and Mina Singhai. And they're going to be talking about where to go from here, chaos or community. It should be very interactive. And we thank you today, our wonderful guests, for kicking us off, especially on this topic. It took us a while to curate uh, some of the faculty. And in the next couple of weeks, we're definitely going to be
2: featuring this discussion, this very important discussion.
0: Thanks, everybody.
2: Take care now. Thank you. Have an amazing
0: day. Bye-bye. Take care. See you tomorrow.